hey guys, you're hearing everywhere about food shortage, overpopulation, water issues, and yet there's those who lean into solutions instead of fear. I want you to hear this episode with Eddie Badrina. It's phenomenal. He is the CEO of Eden Green, and I hope this inspires you not only to love his corporation, but also to see inside of you. What are those problems in front of you that the world turns to fear, but you are called to have solutions? I believe in you. I'm excited for you to hear the first half of this interview and then stay tuned for next week and we'll share the next half. And I can't wait for you to jump in. Welcome to Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. And I am super excited. You guys, I ended up at a venture capitalist conference. I didn't even know what I was doing. And my secret is if I'm going somewhere that I don't know anybody, I always volunteer because then at least I have a role instead of just standing completely by myself. So one of the panels this guest who is with us today um, was speaking and I just felt this like urgency, like go up, introduce yourself. Who cares if it's super awkward and he doesn't know you and ask him to be a guest on this podcast. Because as you guys know, my passion is that you're unlocked personally in your emotions and your thought life, uh, relationally, spiritually, and vocationally. And so today, Eddie Badrina is our guest. He is the CEO of Eden Green, which I'm super excited to hear more about this innovative, amazing, cutting edge technology of bring, bringing green and healthy nutrition and vegetables and all the things um, into regions where that may not be as accessible. And more than ever with diet and nutrition, we know carbs and processed foods and all the junk um, is not good for us. And his corporation is spearheading some really innovative ways to bring life and energy and green food to us all over the world. So I I'm so grateful that Eddie said yes to a stranger who harassed him at a venture capitalist conference. And we are here today and I'm super excited that you're with us. Shannon, thanks so much for having me. I am excited to be on this. Um, I think it was, I think it was great. It was, it was totally courageous of you to, <laughs> to just come up. Uh, although I think we were all in really good company. And so I, yeah. a, a stranger there is probably a stranger than in any different context, right? There, there are a bunch of folks who who uh, are all uh, trying to run the same way, loving Jesus, but then investing in the same way. So it was a it was a great event, uh, and and you know meeting you there was was a highlight. So I'm glad to be on the show. We just did an episode for uh, diet and nutrition and the importance of eating vegetables. Yeah. And we just know that a lot of people, one, it's convenient to do fast food. It's easy to do a packaged meal. Um, it's easy to um, not eat healthy. And then for especially impoverished people in regions of the world, it's easier to just kind of get the basics and not necessarily vegetables. So when I was reading and cyber stalking you, just kidding, um, I was so excited to hear about the vertical planting that you're doing. Would you tell us a little about that? Sure. So eating green uh, is a, uh, I'll call it a high density uh, greenhouse platform. So we're, we're trying to solve a couple of different problems. Uh, the first problem is um, there is a there is a distribution problem that we have right now in the United States and honestly around the world, where we've got ninety percent of our produce uh, coming from California, mm -hmm. all the way across the country to here, and then all the way to the East Coast, right? Uh, and so, 
in normal times, you had about 40% waste. Uh, you had costs associated with it that uh, just, you know, people costs, diesel fuel costs, road costs, infrastructure costs uh, that are all kind of wrapped up in there uh, that made it very inefficient and that made it, you know, less affordable for folks who, who can afford it, right? Uh, for folks who need it. Uh, so you have this distribution problem. Well, then the pandemic came and the distribution problem got worse exponentially, Yeah. right? Um, we went from, you know, uh, shipping whole pallets of uh, produce, call it at $400 per kind of pallet to $4,000 per pallet. Whoa. All of a sudden the prices went crazy with, yeah. with all the other prices that we've seen right now, they've gone crazy. And then that made, uh, produce fresh produce for people who need it the most even more unaffordable than it already is right so we're trying to solve this distribution problem through these greenhouses that are uh instead of working with with square feet we're working with cubic feet we're growing in the entire cubic volume of that greenhouse and because it's so dense we can put it right next to distribution centers we can put it in communities that need uh, the food the most, right? So good. So there's a distribution problem, but really on a consumer level, we're solving this split second decision problem. And here's the split second decision. Yeah. And I'm a psychology major. And so I think about this all the time. Um, when you're standing in front of the produce section of Walmart, right, of uh, Target, of HEB, of Whole Foods or whatever, but let's let's go down a little bit from the Whole Foods and let's go to an HEB or an Albertsons or a Tom Thumb. When you're just your normal everyday consumer, you know, family of four making, you know, household income of $70,000, $80,000 a year, when you're standing in that produce section, there's a split second decision that comes in your mind. Which is, which is, hey, how expensive is this? Mm -hmm. And then how long is this going to last? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Because my dollar is very crucial to me. And if I'm going to feed my family, I want something. I'm kind of thinking about nutrition, but I'm really thinking about how, how far will this dollar take me? Okay. And right now, the split second decision is they look at the produce and maybe it's wilty, maybe it's, you know, $5 a pound for, you know, for, for really high quality produce. Then they think, okay, I can do that, but it's probably going to go bad in my refrigerator mm -hmm. uh, in five days. And plus, you know, the taste is, ah, it's all right. My kids don't like the taste and I don't know how to cook it. Right. So or I can go get the packaged foods or the freezer foods or whatever down on the other aisle. And I know it's going to last for a long time because it's sitting in my freezer or it's processed. And I just know it's going to be a box in my pantry, right. right? That split second decision is running our, uh, our nation's healthcare system. It really is <laughs> because the decisions you make there yeah. ultimately affect the decisions on, on ultimately affect how healthy you are, how often you go to the hospital, when you, are you afraid to go do a doctor's checkup? Are you like, yeah, check me out. I'm healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. Are you proud to go uh, to a doctor's checkup and get those results? So that only that changes the individual, but then it also changes the family structure mm -hmm. because then the family and these kids are they getting used to fresh produce or are they getting used to processed foods? Yeah. And then that in turn 
uh, forms their eating habits for the next generation, right? As adults, are they going to the same grocery store 20 years later and now they're out on their own? And are they picking good food, nutritious food, or are they picking processed food and some of the other options? So we're trying to solve for that split second decision. So if I can provide them with uh, greens that look good, they taste great, and they're affordable. And by the way, the because that distribution chain that we talked about, that's really unsexy, but it really makes a difference. If that distribution chain goes from 2000 miles to 20 miles, well, then it's going to last in your refrigerator or in your shelf or in your pantry for a lot longer, you know, upwards of, you know, two to three weeks, if you can imagine salad lasting in your refrigerator for two to three weeks, then that really changes the equation. Yeah, right. So when we solve for that distribution problem, we're also solving for that split second decision problem that we encounter in produce in the produce aisle. That's what we're solving for. How we do that is great technology, vertical towers full of, you know, full of greens. It would encourage, you know, people to to go and just take a look at the videos uh, and the photos of one of our greenhouses. Like it's incredible. And if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, come take a tour. Like we have both virtual tours and in-life tours. Come take a tour, see this for yourself because it is a game changer. Uh, in in the ag industry, and it's in right in your backyard. So that's what we're solving for. And that's how we do it. Come on, it's so good. And it's fantastic. Because as we know, the only way that the brain can work is through cellular nutrition. And yeah. so if we're feeding our brain processed, dead, lifeless, no energy, or if we're feeding the brain at a cellular level, fresh nutrition, vitamins, minerals, all the essential necessary equipping proteins so that then the brain can properly function and be happy and healthy. Um, So many of our health issues, but also psychological issues are impacted directly from our diet and nutrition or the lack thereof. So how fantastic that you're making it accessible, convenient, close. And I love how, because it goes vertical, it takes up a less land mass, which is also wise on a geographical as well. Exactly. So uh, 40 acres of open farm land is equal to one and a half acres of our greenhouse in terms of output. Uh, And uh, so it's a one of our greenhouses, we call we call the modules because they are they're modular in the way that they're designed, you can put one right next to the other, Mm -hmm. you can actually get put four right across all across from each other and then having a like a packing and uh, production center right in the middle, like a hub and spoke model. But these modules are an acre and a half large. Each of these modules produce anywhere from one and a half to 2 million pounds of leafy greens in a year. So yes. So in, in most cases, uh, one of our greenhouses will be pushing out like, like every, every seven days, they will be, we harvest and ship uh, 70 to 80,000 like units a week. Yes, 70 to 80,000 units. So they could be heads of lettuce, right? They could be salad mixes, 70 to 80,000 per week out of just out of an acre and a half. So when you think about like, oh my gosh, you're, you're taking 40 acres of, of topsoil that's being deteriorating, that's deteriorating harvest after harvest. 
you're taking 40 acres of water that's being wasted and then running off into yeah. other parts of, you know, other parts of the land. Uh, you're taking 40 acres of that's surrounded by land that's maybe running off into that 40 acres, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of environmental pollution that's raining down on it, that's in the air, of bugs that are eating the, the plants, of the pesticides that are used to keep the bugs from eating the plants. Come Taking on. all of that, eliminating that, and then shrinking it down to an acre and a half, that's what you have in one of our uh, eating green modules. Okay, so that's like taking organic to the next level if yeah. we're removing the bug and pesticide equation and yep. the chemicals that the body would ingest, because mm -hmm. if it kills bugs, it's probably not good for your digestive tract. Right. So the, so, you know, we get a lot of questions like, Hey, how does this compare to organic? How does it compare to conventional? And from a price perspective, uh, we actually compete. We've done it pretty uh, uniquely in our industry where our pricing is actually closer than closer to conventional pricing than it is to organic like we're that efficient wow. and economically efficient of a model um, from a nutrition perspective it's uh it's i would say equal to or better than organic and so here's why i say this organic uh the organic label uh which is you know create it was created sort of artificially you know it's a marketing ploy if you will it's a good one i think it's 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 uh its basis was was uh absolutely well intentioned mm -hmm. but it's just to provide the consumer with uh, a reassurance that there are no uh, synthetic pesticides mm -hmm. um, and that there's you know there's good things going into the soil the missing part of it it's in no fault due to the organic label or you know the the industry association is that there are a lot of factors that go into the land that you can't control um, so for instance we've had a lot of uh of recalls lately uh from uh from open field farming not because the inputs were bad uh, that the farmers were inputting themselves, like they didn't use any synthetic pesticides, they were mm -hmm. doing, you know, all natural uh, fertilizers. The problem was they were surrounded by farmland that was having runoff into the ground. Oh. And then it was, it was, uh, it was making a very toxic environment in the in the ground. Well, you can't control that as a farmer, as an mm -hmm. organic farmer, you can't yeah. control that. Um, you can't control the rain that comes from, you know, that is that is just being developed halfway across the United States, mm -hmm. being picked up all the toxic elements that are in the air and then mm -hmm. raining down on your, you can't control that, right? So there are only so many things you can control in an organic uh, growth environment. Uh, and you can control quite a bit, You can, but you can't control them all, yeah. right? So what we've tried to do is say, okay, how much how much of nature can we accept and can we use, mm -hmm. aka sunlight, how much nature can we, what, you know, nature provides in, uh, in excess, use the sunlight, but then uh, not be limited by and keep out the things of uh, nature or of human uh, environmental impact yeah. uh, that is negatively affecting yeah. uh, the plants. And so that's why we're, we're growing in these greenhouses is to keep out the things that we need to keep out and then to let the sunlight in uh, so that we're not using so much electricity to, you know, light up, uh, light up these greenhouses. Uh, and so, you know, we really sit on the spectrum in between flat greenhouses, which we've seen like the Dutch and the French have perfected mm -hmm. that model. They're, they're profitable. 
um, they're, uh, they're very efficient, uh, but the problem is you need 10 acres of greenhouse to equal one and a half acres of ours. It's hard to find 10 acres that's remotely close to yeah. the population. So it doesn't, the 10 acres of flat tray greenhouse doesn't solve for the distribution problem that I mentioned at the beginning. And then on the other end, you see these really high tech, cool vertical farms that we've seen all seen in the news, right? They're all indoors. Yeah. Well, they're all indoors. And if you look at the lights that are needed to grow those, those lights are really expensive and the electricity to run those lights is really expensive mm. and the electricity is dirty, right? Unless you're getting it from wind, if you're totally committed to renewable, uh -huh. which in other parts of the world, that's not even an option. Uh -huh. Where are you getting it from? Well, you're getting it from coal and natural gas power plants. So it's sort of, it, it, it negates any sort of the ESG, the environmental, sustainable, governmental, the ESG sort of uh, uh, components of, uh, what they, you know, what they attest to in terms of saving land. So we in, in between the vertical farming and the greenhouse, we sit right in the middle. We're vertical farming, but within a greenhouse, we're taking the advantage of sunlight and really cutting down on our operational costs. That's so good. Yeah. It's, so it's if, pretty awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, being the CEO, I think you have quite a passion. I'm biased. I'm biased. <laughs> you're the right guy to be in that seat. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So how does somebody like I could think I have friends that are farmers. Mm -hmm. So just on the practical side, they could acquire this and start developing a model. And I saw yeah. on your website that you would even help them hire people to know how to do the vertical farming. Well, let's start there. But then also if somebody's hearing this and they're like, gosh, I don't know what spill off is coming into the farmland that I'm trying to eat healthy. Um, what is hope for the consumer as well? Yeah. So I think how to get more of this into the market is honestly folks listening to this podcast uh, saying like, hey, we want, we want more of these options out there yeah. and uh, telling their retailers, right? Telling their grocers, telling their restaurants, uh, telling the places that they frequent like, hey, why aren't you guys looking at these guys? Mm. Like, these guys are doing it the right way. They're affecting our community in a positive level. Yeah. Why, why, why aren't we buying our greens from that? I want greens from that. So it's sort of a, a, we're taking it from the level of, hey, farmers, hey, investors, hey, retailers, buy our greenhouses. We'll, we will build them, we'll develop them, we'll manage and staff them. We'll even help sell the greens for on behalf of the grocers or on behalf of the farmers. Like we'll help them in that whole way through in a turnkey operation. Uh, but it takes both. It takes both the supply as well as the demand, mm. uh, both of those to be yelling out like, hey, we need more of, of eating green. We need more of their greenhouses and we need more of their greens. Uh, and that's how, you know, for, for us, that's how we make it, we make it successful. And I'm excited about it. Um, but really, like I didn't, and you know, this may be a really uh, uh, poignant thing for some of your listeners. I didn't even start in agriculture. I, I started. I had a degree in psychology, and I started in government. Uh, so I had a chance to work for Bush Senior as well as in wow. the W administration. Oh my gosh! Uh, and uh, and and just had you know the opportunity to get a macro perspective of the world. Um, and I was you know I was a, a an analyst for the State Department for about four years. And then I was President Bush's Asian American spokesperson for about two. Oh my gosh. Uh, W's. Yeah. So in DC, 
Uh, but that gave me a really good overview from a global level, but then also from a national domestic level of what the needs were in our community. Yeah. Uh, and so I started, left DC, started a business, took it to a level where we were able to be acquired. So sold it. That's like it every back entrepreneur's dream. Go for yes, it. Yes, right? <laughs> so sold it, bought it back 11 months later, uh, and then sold it again. Uh, because that's just what we do. Why, why sell it once when you can sell it twice? Yeah, why not make profit twice? Right? So I say all that because uh, I, I didn't start out in ag, but what I did have was something that was on my heart after we had reacquired uh, uh, that first company. Um, I felt like uh, that I was trying to be diligent and excellent with the business that I had but my heart was being taken in another direction. Yeah. And so how did I, you know, one, how did I uh, process where my heart was being led? But then two, how did I hold that first thing up uh, with, you know, uh, with just being a good steward of it, right? And so it was through that process, it was through about a year long process uh, that I was able to do both of those. I was able to hold this business loosely, but still treat it with uh, excellence and diligence and be a good steward of it. And I was able to really uh, work on where my heart was with this other with this other piece. I say all that because there's probably a lot of people who are thinking, gosh, Eddie must have been in ag for 20 years and he's just kind of put his head down and he's right and he's just worked his way there. And I'm here to tell you, like, for me, at least, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I feel like the path to where I've been is very emblematic, very representative of a lot of people's path is just because you start somewhere, somewhere, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you're, you're held to that to go mm -hmm. to where your, where your dreams may be yes. and your dreams may change over time. And yeah. that's all right. As long as you're submitting it back to the one who gave you the dream, right? Yeah. Um, for me, it was, you know, it was understanding like, hey, what's my identity apart from any business that I own or run? Okay. What's my identity? Mm -hmm. And out of that identity, how was I, what was I created to do? What am I really passionate about? Uh, and then how do I do, how do I, uh, how do I just follow instinctively going from where I was being diligent and excellent with what I was doing? but then being able and open to the other passion that I had, mm. that is a, that I think being able to manage that, being able to run that with community, run that with close friends and family and being able to run through that well, allowed me to get to where I was uh, because, uh, you know, I wasn't really, uh, I was trying to be excellent and diligent there, but I wasn't really happy. And so it was just a, it was a long process, uh, but I, I hope that encourages folks you know, who are listening to this, that you don't necessarily have to be where you are right now. And you also can be, uh, there's also a patience game. I call it tactical patience, a tactical mm -hmm. patience game of letting that uh, process go out naturally to where you're able to identify that dream with clarity mm -hmm. and with vision and uh, be able to pass it through friends and family to make sure it's coming from a healthy place and then moving towards that in confidence. My route was a very circuitous and windy route to get to where I am now, but I, I think it was very much a, a route that was filled with a lot of unknowing of just taking a step-by-step -step faithfulness. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that that's a, it's a bit of a tangent, but I feel like- Oh, I feel it's so good. Following.
I, I think a lot of people need to hear that. Absolutely. And I think one thing I'm hearing is about self-limiting beliefs mm-hmm. that a lot of times we base our identity, our hope, our future, our competence level on what I'm currently doing. And we can create limiting beliefs of, well, I'm just mid-management or I'm a mid-level person. You know, maybe I've graduated college and I've kind of gotten the initial job and I'm just kind of stagnant. And it's really easy to just get lulled into a lackluster life and kind of forfeit some of those dreams and just get the paycheck and then do whatever on the weekend and my private time because I don't really feel alive at work. And I think statistically, a lot of people do not feel alive at work. And so I love this marriage of holding the dream and the patience and the waiting and not limiting yourself to what I'm doing now may not be what I always end up doing. I love a good pivot, you know, and being able to accrue skills in this season and then apply them in something totally unrelated. And yet it gives you a market edge because now you have a whole different skill set in an industry where they weren't expecting that. And you're this little outlier that can add so much value you. I hope you're journaling this week, taking time to write down what's the burden on your heart. What do you see as a societal issue that you would love to see remedied? Stay tuned for next week. We'll have the second half of this interview.